we exist? Were we created with a purpose? Or are we just here by chance? What are we to believe about life, faith, and worldview? Welcome to the universe next door, focusing on answers to the questions we all consider. This show is a ministry of the C.S. Lewis Society and supported by gifts of listeners just like you. Join us as we seek to see a generation captivated and transformed by the truth of Christianity. This is The Universe Next Door. Welcome to The Universe Next Door. I hope you are doing well. I am doing pretty well. I've been busy the last few weeks, uh, not only preparing for a baby to come anytime now, but also uh, just studying and studying and studying for a conference coming up this Friday, or well, this Thursday it starts. I'll be speaking Friday. But we're going to have a conference this weekend, uh, Thursday through Saturday, called With Liberty and Justice for All. It's here in Clearwater, Florida, uh, being held actually where I serve, where I uh, go to church. So um, I will put the link in the description below, but if you have not registered for this conference, sign up now. Like I said, the link is down there. And if you sign up now, you can use the code CBC uh, to register free. So you can go to the conference for free. And especially if you live in the Tampa area, that's that's a no-brainer. I mean, we have people coming from all over the country, uh, from the other side of the country, from New York, from North Carolina. We have people flying in from all over the place. But if you're in this area, especially, I mean, a free conference, and we're going to have uh, not only Michael Fallon and I there, who I had on last week, check that out if you haven't, uh, but James Lindsay is going to be there, Bill Roach and, and Andy Woodard, all kinds of people. We're going to have people from Asians for Liberty uh, coming and talking about how what's going on now in our country. Uh, with what we've seen over the last several years, but also with Christian nationalism, uh, it all kind of ties together and it resembles Maoist China. That's uh, obviously concerning, but we're going to be talking about a lot of that. I'm going to be speaking directly on the issues of biblical national or, or Christian nationalism from a biblical standpoint, uh, why it doesn't stand, why it is a misuse of scripture, and also what the Bible does uh, does tell us to do. So register down there. And that's a little bit of what I'm going to talk about today. And today what I'm going to do is focus on a, a specific angle of this. Um, like I said, the the conference is this week, and so I'll be speaking a whole lot on this, and the, the video will be available afterward. But I did want to touch on this today and get into the topic again of, of Christian nationalism and why it's so dangerous. Because I think there are a few things they, uh, they do that they use. And when I say they, I mean... It's not so clearly defined across the board. Um, there are slightly different definitions from Stephen Wolf. You may have seen the book "The Case for Christian Nationalism," which is it was a it was a bestseller on Amazon for a while. Um, you have "Mere Christendom" by Doug Wilson that just came out. You have uh, uh, William Wolf who who was working on the the draft for their um, what do you call it the, uh, the their their constitution thing for Christian nationalism. They they have. I mean, they have different definitions of working definitions, but I actually think um, what they're doing is they're, they're using different definitions so they can bounce back from one to the other and defend something when it becomes uh, indefensible. This is referred to as a Mott and Bailey. And, and what that, that term basically means um, is, is you kind of use this this view that's you push it pretty hard. It's it's it can become difficult to defend, and so when somebody pushes back on it, you kind of see how far you can get. When they push back, you retreat to the more defensible view, uh, and the more defensible view is is usually something along the lines of, oh, you know, we we just want to see God's law uh, followed. We just want to see God honored. We just you know that's what we mean by Christian nation. Um, but the less defensible view is the. The whole, you know, we need a Christian prince, we need to round up atheists, uh, we're going to have a totalitarian regime. Um, that's what we see from the more uh, the more forward sort of argument. So they'll make this argument, when pushed on it, they'll retreat back to the more defensible position. And so um, we're, we're seeing a lot of this in these different definitions. And I think that there's a few things they're using um, to get this into the church, or not only do I think I, I've seen it. But they're, but they're using a few things to get these concepts into the church uh, and to push them among the people. And it's sort of similar to what you saw over the last few years with, let's say, critical theory and intersectionality and all this kind of stuff, um, uh, gender theory, where it's like all of a sudden this stuff seeping into the church 
in in really spreading quickly and people are starting to think well if i don't agree with this i i, I must not be a christian or you know whatever it might be um so i think that very same thing is happening here just with different similar but different tactics uh and one of those tactics is called general equity theonomy so if you've never heard of the term general equity theonomy we are going to break that down in this episode but I can promise you it's a term you're going to be hearing a lot more of um, once you start looking into this. And if you don't start looking into this, I think it's going to become more prominent anyway. And eventually you're going to have to deal with it and form opinions on these things. And, and one of the reasons I think it's so important to do that early on is because I'm under the impression that a lot of the church, this Christian nationalism stuff is explained in such a way where a Christian will hear it. Uh, someone who's part of a church will hear it, and they'll they'll think it sounds like a good idea until they dig into the details. Uh, I think there's a lot. I don't I don't want to go as far as to say manipulative language used. Um, I don't know any of these guys personally who are pushing this. I don't know their motives. I'm not going to assume their motives. I'm not going to slander any of them. Uh, but what I am going to say is, while in in Philippians one, Paul tells us not to be concerned with motives. Unless somebody tells us, so I'm not concerned with their motives. But what he does say is, you know, as long as pre- as long as Christ is preached, he isn't concerned with their motives and their selfish motives. Uh, so I don't care about anyone's motives. I care about the content of what's being pushed, and so that's what I'm addressing here is the content, uh, the content that's being pushed and uh, being put forward not only in the church but in the nation. So there's a lot to get into today. I'm going to try to keep it. Summarized, clear, brief. Uh, I'll get into more detail, of course, Friday. But um, and if then if you do go to the conference, if you are signed up or are going to sign up, hit that link, CBC, and you can go for free. Uh, but come say hi to me. I love to meet people who listen to the show. I love to talk to people who listen to the show. It's actually one of my very favorite things to do. So make sure to come say hi. I will be there all three days. Now, before we get into this, just make sure you hit follow wherever you're listening, uh, whether it's Apple or Spotify, etc. Just hit follow, and that'll alert you of new episodes and help you to keep up with the show. Of course, we all listen to tons of content, I'm sure, uh, different podcasts, different YouTube channels, different whatever. So it's always helpful to have a reminder. If you could just hit follow, that would be a blessing to us and to you as well. Uh, So what I wanted to start with is the the idea that... um, like I said, I don't think Christian nationalism can be defended uh, scripturally. I don't think that it's, not only is it not clear in scripture, but I actually don't think it, a case can really be made. Um, and, and like I said, the the tool or the device used to sort of push this in the church is general equity theonomy. Um, so I'll start by breaking that down a little bit, and then we'll come back and touch on it. But if you're not familiar with the term theonomy, uh, theonomy is a term that means God's law. Theos, God, and then nomos is law. So theonomy is God's law. Um, so what you have is you have specific views of, of varying degrees on how the law of God uh, can and should be enforced. And so when somebody says a th- that they're a theonomist, um, Doug Wilson likes to make a joke where, uh, and, and he's a general equity theonomist, he's, he's, he pushes Christian nationalism, uh, but he'll he'll make a joke where when somebody says, are you a theonomist? He'll say, no, I hate God's law. Uh, and actually, I, I think that's a pretty funny joke because <laughs> it, it does mean God's law. But usually when someone says they're a theonomist, they have a particular view in mind. And like I said, there are varying degrees. So there are some people who think that we have to take the whole law of Moses, all 613. Well, uh, they, they would usually argue that the ceremonial law has been fulfilled uh, because of you know, the sacrifice of Christ and so on. But they'll, they'll basically, they'll take the Mosaic law and they'll enforce it today. Um, now, that's not most theonomists. What I think is most common today is this form of theonomy called uh, general equity theonomy. And general equity theonomy is, is, is the theonomy being pushed by the guys I've mentioned um, who are pushing Christian nationalism today. So what general equity theonomy is, is basically uh, the laws of God that are for the general equity of the nation. So they have this concept, um, and you'll see how this ties in, but they have this concept as, as uh, Dr. Stephen Wolf defines it in his book, The Case for Christian Nationalism, where the goal is to have this consciously Christian nation. Now, that sounds great, doesn't it? <laughs> it's, it sounds like a utopia, a Christian utopia. Um, and actually, we're going to have a Christian utopia. Well, 
depending on the exact definition of utopia, but one day the kingdom of God will be on earth. Okay. One, one day that's going to happen. Uh, if that's not going to happen, then somebody should inform the meek because they're going to be disappointed. Uh, but so what, what they want is a consciously Christian nation. And I use air quotes here, uh, because how they define a consciously Christian nation is a nation that obeys God's law outwardly. So a consciously Christian nation is not a nation who, who are all actual Christians saved by faith and have been baptized in the faith. What a, a consciously Christian nation is, as I mentioned, is a, uh, a country or a nation who outwardly obeys a certain interpretation of God's law. That's how I best understand it. And that's how I think it's described in the case for Christian nationalism. So they want a nation who's going to outwardly obey God's law. Um, and what this means is that they can't erect any mosques uh, or other religions because that's, you know, the first commandment. They'll, they'll say, well, the Ten Commandments have to be kept. And yes, that includes the Sabbath for the general equity uh, theonomist. So they'll say, you know, no idol worship. Um, if you want to worship at home, you can go ahead and do that if you're a Muslim, but you cannot erect a mosque. Now, of course, you'll see, <laughs> you'll see why that has issues um, to say you can do idolatry at home, but not in public. Uh, but they want to they enforce the Ten Commandments, not just on the church, not just with Christians, um, but publicly through government, through civil authority. And so in order to do this, in order to enforce uh, the Ten Commandments, and, and more than that, I'll, I'll explain why the Ten Commandments, just saying the Ten Commandments, I think, is a little bit deceptive. Um, but anyway, so, so the way they, they want to do this in Stephen Wolf's Christian nationalism is you have this figure called the Christian Prince. Yes, it sounds silly, um, and that's because it is silly. But you, you have this figure called the Christian Prince, and the Christian Prince is supposed to be the conscience of the nation. He's going to be this brave, righteous, holy man, and he's going to hold the highest office on earth. This is actually in Stephen Wolf's book in the chapter in Christian Prince. Look at it for yourself. And what you'll see is he'll, he'll often use this sort of tactic where he'll say something bold and then later he'll say, uh, he'll kind of qualify it. So I'll give you an example, but it's kind of like if you ever see like, a, I mean, people don't really read newspapers anymore, but <laughs> if you do, they'll put something on the front page of a newspaper okay, and then it's like later, they, they know it's not really true, but they it's it's quote unquote true enough to put it out there. So they'll put something on the front page of a paper. Uh, and then, you know, next week they'll correct it, but they'll correct it on page 50 where nobody's going to see it. Um, and it's kind of like a, a caveat or like you technically said it, but you didn't really say it. Uh, it this is, this is what I think Stephen Wolf does in this chapter on the Christian Prince. Because what he'll do is he'll say something like, you know, the Christian prince will have a touch of divinity. He'll be God on earth. Um, and then he'll qualify it later. He'll qualify it by saying, oh, you know, of course I don't literally, literally mean a touch of divinity. Uh, you know, it's just figurative. Or, or he'll say, oh, yeah, well, well, by God on earth, I mean in the way that it's used in in Psalm 82. And, you know, and, and he actually quotes Psalm 82. Those of you who have listened to the show for a while, you know the issues with that. <laughs> uh, but he quotes Psalm 82, where you have these uh, gods, air quotes, which are lesser Elohim, um, named in Psalm 82. But what he tries to do is he tries to quote Psalm 82 and say, here's an example of a human referred to as a god. Now, just as a quick, quick, quick rabbit trail, um, if you're going to make that argument, go to Exodus because Psalm 82, number one, isn't about human judges. That's an outdated and indefensible view. But even if you do hold the view that Psalm 82 is about uh, human judges, the human judge mentioned there, the quote unquote prince mentioned in Psalm 82 has been, he's become corrupt and he's being judged by God. He's going to die like a mere mortal. So really, uh, really strange <laughs> and, and inconvenient on, on part of the Christian Prince defense, really strange chapter or verse to quote. I think he quotes verse six. Um, but this is something that you'll see a lot. You'll see like a, a bold idea put forward and then this sort of like, oh, but we don't really mean that. Well, if you don't really mean it, don't say it. We don't need, we don't need a God on earth. Okay. Israel was a theocracy, meaning the law in the government, uh, in the church, so to speak, were one. Okay. That was the whole goal. I mean, judges were spiritual leaders and civil leaders. That was a whole goal, but we don't have that now because we're no longer Israel. 
Christ is now, or we're not, we're not Israel in that sense. Um, Christ is now drawing all the nations back to himself. So we don't have this sort of church government uh, anymore. That's just, it's not how things work in the New Testament, which is one of my main points for disagreeing with not only general equity theonomy, but with Christian nationalism. As you know, if it was biblical, I'd try to, you know, defend it properly. I tried to, I would try to say, well, you know, maybe I'll consider this. There's a good biblical argument, but there's not. There's no good biblical argument. And in fact, in the case, uh, the, the case for Christian nationalism by, by Stephen Wolf, he hardly quotes scripture. And most of the time he does quote scripture, it's, it's a pretty embarrassingly bad interpretation of what he's quoting. Uh, so this really is not a view based on scripture. And this is where I say general equity theonomy is basically the, the, the device used to get this unbiblical concept into the church, this concept that resembles Mao's, Maoist China, that resembles uh, a, a, total, a totalitarian dictatorship. This is basically funneled into the church through general equity theonomy. So to get back to that for a moment, you see how the prince, the Christian prince, is the one who's going to be uh, enforcing these laws, uh, these these Old Testament laws from the Mosaic Covenant, and I'll, I'll qualify that in a minute. But he's going to be the one deciding, uh, making, and enforcing these laws. He's, as Dr. Wolf puts it, he is the uh, mediator between the people and the government, and he has the highest office in the land. That's how he's defined. Um, so he, he's the conscience of a consciously Christian nation, which again, remember, does not mean a nation full of Christians who are saved by faith, but a nation full of people uh, who aren't actually Christian, who can who can uh, worship idols at home, who can uh, who, who can basically just completely not care for who God for who God is, so long as they outward obey a certain set of rules, such as following the Sabbath, such as not uh, worshiping other gods in public, and so on. So the Christian prince is going to be the one to enforce. Um, to enforce this interpretation of the law. And so that's where I say general equity theonomy here is the, uh, is, is the way for it into the church. Because what general equity theonomy does and, and can be used for, now I'm not saying all theonomists do this, and all theonomists are not Christian nationalists. So if you are a theonomist and you listen to the show, I, I disagree with you, but I appreciate you. And I think, you know, if you can defend theonomy, fine. But I don't think theonomy is, is valid, in the sense that it's used, I don't think general equity theonomy is valid. Um, and so not not all theonomists are Christian nationalists, but all Christian nationalists are theonomists. Uh, with that out of the way, what they'll say is, you know, the, the Ten Commandments are the moral law reflected behind the, the whole 613 commandments. So they're all funneled down into the Ten Commandments. Uh, now, it is true that the laws have principles behind them. And when you look at the, mes- the the Westminster Confession, I think it's a generally helpful division that is made uh, where, where the Westminster Confession will say that the law is, it, it can be categorized into three portions. You would have the civil law, you would have the ceremonial law, uh, and you would have the moral law. And so behind all of these laws, you have this moral principle. Um, and, and I'll show you where I think this is where it gets dangerous because yeah, while that is a helpful category for the law, you have to be careful taking something, taking an interpretation of something and being able to use it however you want. So for example, um, it's very often for a general equity theonomist to, to base a lot of their view and a lot of their argument off of a passage from first Corinthians nine. So let's look at this passage in First First uh, Corinthians nine. I'll just pull it up really quick, and this is one you've probably heard before, um, or at least you've probably heard the the phrase here used here. So in verse um, verse nine, so First Corinthians nine nine, and this is really a prime example that they'll use. I mean, Doug Wilson has used this, Joel Webb has used this. This is an example that general equity theonomists will use um, to defend their view and, and to show what they think is happening in the New Testament uh, usage of the law. So in 1 Corinthians 9, 9, it says, For it is written in the law of Moses, Do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. 
Is it about oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us, because whoever plows and threshes should be able to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. So that's the verse. I'll explain what they do with it, and then we'll look at the larger context and see what I think Paul uh, is actually doing. So what they'll say is what Paul's doing here is he's looking at the law of Moses, and he's looking at the verse that says, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out grain. Now, just as a a very brief summary, what that basically means is, you know, if an ox is treading out grain, he's collecting grain, um, allow him to stop and eat some. And the point of that is that he should be, uh, he should be getting some of the fruit of his labor, okay? And and he, and Paul's using this, as we'll see in a moment, to to make his defense that apostles and and preachers should be able to get paid for their labor. They should be able to collect some of the fruit of their labor, and that is what uh, that's what he's getting at here. But what the general equity theonomist will say um, is that what's actually happening is this passage that says, don't muzzle an ox while it's treading out grain, and Paul takes it and says, this is actually for people. What he's, what they'll say he's doing is almost like, I don't, I don't want to use the term they don't use, but uh, almost like he's reappropriating the law. Like he's seeing the, the principle behind it, which is true. He's seeing the principle behind it, and he's taking this law and almost, almost uh, bringing it forward to New Testament times and now applying it in a different way. Well, there's there's a couple things to be said here. Um, firstly, let's see the whole context here. Um, and, and just to reiterate that how this ties in with general equity theonomy is they'll say, see, well, this is, you know, the, the principle behind this or the moral law behind this, um, Paul is, is taking and he's using it for the New Testament times. He, he's taking this Old Testament law, but he's bringing it in and appropriating it to New Testament times. Uh, But there's a couple issues with this. Number one, when we look at the whole context, I think the best explanation of what Paul's doing here is called Calvahomer. And this is a a Jewish thing that they would do, that rabbis would do during this time. And it basically means to argue from lesser to greatest. So you're arguing from lesser to greatest. So it's similar to when Jesus says, you know, if God cares for the birds, how much more for you? Um, what what they're doing is they're making an argument from lesser to greater. So this is something that was commonly done by Jewish rabbis. And so if if we look and we just start at verse one, let's just read verse one through twelve, and we'll we'll get a better idea of what's actually going on here. I think he says, "Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you, for you are the you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord." This is my defense to those who sit in judgment on me. Don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Peter? Or is it only I and Barnabas who lack the right to not work for a living? So here he, pause real quick at verse six, uh, he, he sets the stage here for what's going on. So in, in the letter of 1 Corinthians, he's, he's responding to questions uh, that the Corinthian people would have been asking. So he's responding to these questions that they're sending to him. Uh, how, how they did that, I don't know, probably through letter, but he's, he's responding to them. Um, and the, the problem here is you can see the questions that they, they have or, or the accusations they're making against Paul, um, where they don't have the right to food and drink, where they don't have a right to bring a wife along with them, um, where they don't have a right to work or to not work for a living. In other words, they should have a right to get paid for what they're doing here, <clears throat> for preaching the gospel and for traveling in, in ministry. They're, they're making the argument that they should get paid for this. So that's him That's him setting the scene here in verses 1 through 6. That's the scene. And now he goes on in verse 7 and says, Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink the milk? Do I say this merely on human authority? Doesn't the law say the same thing? And now this is where verse 9 comes in. Um, well, so let's pause actually before we read verse 9. So what does he do here? He starts by saying, do Barnabas and I not have a right to not work for a living when we're working so hard in ministry? And keep in mind, Paul's a tent builder. He's actually making this argument in order to, um, to show what's true, to show he does have a right, but he actually doesn't use this right. 
he, he says later, even though he has this right, he's not going to use it because he doesn't want to hinder anybody. So he's working and building tents and so on uh, while he's traveling and doing ministry and while he's staying in these different locations. So um, so he, he asked the question, why don't we have a right to not work for a living if we're working so hard for the gospel? And notice what he does in verse 7. He says, doesn't a soldier, doesn't a soldier get you know, get paid for what he does? Doesn't one who plants a vineyard get to eat some of the grapes? Doesn't somebody who tends a flock get to drink some of the milk? So he starts giving these examples from lesser to greater. And in the city of Corinth, um, they would have they would have known uh, that philosophers, being in Greece, um, philosophers would have taken a, a Patreon with them. They would have made money for what they do. They would have spoken at dinners. They would have had these these different ways of getting paid for uh, for their talks, for their speeches, for their whatever you want to call them. But philosophers um, commonly would have been able to bring somebody with them that would pay them or somebody who would, uh, they, they would beg even, they would charge fees for lectures. And so this is something philosophers would do. They would have known this. And now he makes the argument that even a soldier does this, one who owns a vineyard does this, uh, one who tends a flock, drinks the milk from the, you know, from the cows that they, they raise and produce. So he's making this argument from lesser to greater. And now, finally in verse 9, when he says, for, is it, for it is written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out grain. And it's not about oxen that God is concerned, it's about us. So that's what he says. So notice what he's doing here. He goes from uh, soldier to vineyard to animal or to, I'm sorry, to the, the one who tends the animals. And now finally, after the one who tends the animals, he says, even animals, even animals reap the fruit of their labor. How much more for us? <laughs> even animals are going to be able to get some of the fruit of what they work so hard on. So human beings should too. The law isn't written for animals. The law is written for human being. He says it's not about oxens or oxen. That's already plural. It's not, it's not about oxen that God is concerned. He says this for us. You know, farmers would have been expected, if, if they were a good godly man, they would have been expected to take care of their animals. I mean, think about it. The law is an expression of something that's already true. It's already true that we're to love God and love our neighbor and taking care of animals. Um, and that's, you know, one of the ideas of what dominion actually is, like rightfully caring for animals. Uh, it would reflect a godly man. A godly man doesn't mistreat his animals. A godly man doesn't, uh, doesn't let his animals starve while working so hard because what this would do is it would reflect his nature. It would show what his nature really is. And it would probably tell you how he treats his neighbors as well. So what Paul's doing here is he's making this argument from lesser to greater. And he's showing that even animals, soldiers, uh, farmers, those who own vineyards, even animals. Okay, so how much more us? And that's when he goes on and says, you know, surely he says this for us. Yes, this was written for us because whoever plows and threshes should be able to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more, but we did not use this right? Because he didn't want um, to hinder them from the gospel. So, you know, we're no longer under the law. We're not under the law of Moses anymore. And we're and I, I bring this this verse up because this is one of their um, this is one of their main verses that they will use to support general equity theonomy. But now that you understand kind of the background of what I'm saying and what they're saying here, the reason, as you might have seen, why I think it's so dangerous to say we're going to de- we are going to determine the principle behind each law and then we are going to reinforce that law today in 2023 in America how we in our theological view see fit well what's the problem with that their interpretation can be whatever they want it to be <laughs> their interpretation can look however they want it to look they can say well in our theological tradition uh in in you know with our christian prince what we're going to do is we're going to take we're going to take the principle behind all these different laws and we're going to enforce them however we want. This is why it's so dangerous. I mean, we're not under the law. As Paul says in Galatians, the law was a guardian until Christ came. So if the church is not under the law, 
how much more are the nations not under God's specific laws? You know, Paul says in Romans 2, I think it's 2.12, that, you know, when Gentiles do something to keep God's law without having God's law, they show that his law is written on their heart. So we all have a conscience. Of course, that conscience is, is and can be seared. Um, but what that tells us, what that verse shows us, is that the Gentiles, most of them at least, other nations, didn't have God's law. They didn't have it. And what theonomists will often do is they'll say that this is an argument from silence uh, to say that to say that Gentiles or the other nations didn't have God's law. And I'm going to show you why it's actually not. It's explicitly said in Scripture. But the point is that God never judges other nations on not keeping his specific laws. They were for Israel. So, for example, when is another nation in Scripture judged for not keeping the Sabbath? Never. I don't even think I have to keep the Sabbath, okay? As a Christian, I don't think I'm under the law anymore. I think I'm now under Christ. I don't have to keep the Sabbath. I think it's a good pattern. I think your brain needs to take a day off. I think your family needs you to take a day off. I I think that's a good pattern to keep, and I think it would honor God in, in many ways. But we're not under the law. I mean, I'm sure there are plenty of times where Paul didn't have time to take a day off. Okay, we're not under the law anymore. But what they want to do is enforce the Sabbath through government. And again, even if you're going to, even if you disagree with me on 1 Corinthians 9.9, even if you are going to say that what Paul's doing is he's taking the law and he's applying it now to today um, in, in a different and unique way, well, you still have to deal with the fact that he's not talking to the government. He's not talking to a nation. He's talking to the church at Corinth. So at best, all you get is this confusing, we're not supposed to keep the law, but we are supposed to keep the law in the church. You still don't get anything in regard to the nation because the nations didn't have the law and the apostles in the New, well, even in the Old Testament, they're not concerned with other nations and the law, but in the New Testament, they're certainly not concerned with other people keeping the law. I mean, read the Council of Jerusalem in the church, let alone other nations. So here is Psalm 147, and this is verses 19 and 20. It says, he has revealed his word to Jacob, his laws and decrees to Israel. He has done this for no other nation. They do not know his laws. There it is. (laughs) How much more clear could it be? He's revealed his laws and decrees to Israel. He has done this for no other nation. They don't know his laws. So if you say they do know his laws and he does judge other nations by his laws, then you are contradicting God. And God tells me to obey him rather than men. So if you are going to contradict God, then I'm not going to obey you. I'm going to obey him. The other nations do not have this yoke on them of the law like Israel had, and neither do we. And it's insulting to Christ, the sufficiency of Christ, to say otherwise. I mean, it's insulting to biblical narrative to say otherwise. It's just a huge misunderstanding of scripture. And, and like I said, I don't know their motives, but it seems like they should know this. It seems like they're using general equity theonomy to smuggle this into the church. But I don't think that this is, is biblically defensible. And I don't think that what we're supposed to do as Christians to cause people to quote unquote honor God even though he's not concerned with sacrifice, he's concerned with faithful love. That's Hosea 6.4. What we shouldn't be doing is depicting Christ as one whose, whose yoke is impossible and whose burden is heavy. That's how we depict Christ when we suggest to nations that God is concerned with specific laws from the Mosaic Covenant that we're going to appropriate for today and enforce on you. That's what it communicates. It communicates that Christ is harsh. It communicates that, that Christ is technical and legalist like the Pharisees. And really, this isn't, this isn't much different than what they expected uh, the Messiah to do in the first century church. They expected the Messiah to come and, and overthrow the government. And they expected them to, to come and make everything better, even up to Acts chapter 1. Even when you get to Acts 1, the apostles, even after the death and resurrection, they're still asking, okay, is it time to take over the kingdom now? Jesus is... I don't know that he rolled his eyes, but I, I like to imagine. Uh, but, but this is what they expected in the first century that we all know was wrong. And now they're trying to do it again. In regard to the Christian, the law was the guardian until faith came. 
until Christ came. And now there's a, there's a new and better and more complete way than there was. Uh, in regard to the nations, they never had the law. So this is just a waste of a discussion uh, to argue either of those things. It turns into legalism very quickly. And that's why I think you see a lot of these guys beating up on women all the time and complaining about them, uh, how women dress and how women understand things and how women, like, it turns into legalism. It turns into them beating up on people who they think are lesser than them. It turns into, uh, it turns into this pharisaical view of the church where everybody's supposed to agree with this one theological view with all of these technicalities attached. And while sure, yeah, I'm not going to say that they're distorting the gospel necessarily because they probably win that argument. They believe in salvation by faith alone, at least most of them. But what I think they are doing here whether directly or indirectly, I don't know, but they're adding a second gospel. They're saying you have to believe in the gospel, but you also have to believe these things. You also have to believe in the commandments. You also have to believe that we can reappropriate the Mosaic law to however we see fit today. You also have to believe that if we don't have a quote unquote, consciously Christian nation, then we're failing God and we're not obeying him. And he needs us to do this before he comes back. I can hardly think of anything more insulting than thinking that God needs you to dominate the earth and to dominate governments before he can come back. <laughs> I mean, this is idolatry at its finest. Now, I wanted to take a couple minutes here to, to look at what the apostles did do in the New Testament. Um, so let's, oh, <laughs> I accidentally typed in Ephesus 19 instead of Acts 19. Let me go back and type in, uh, okay, Acts 19. So this is what the apostles did do, okay? Remember, when you look at the big picture, um, you have, of course, the you start with the Garden of Eden. And the Garden of Eden is supposed to be a place of one people. The spiritual and the physical realm are connected. So there's no division. But the Garden of Eden had a geographical location. So the Garden of Eden was not the whole earth. The Garden of Eden was a specific place. So... What God intended is to create those in his image, his imagers, to spread Eden, to spread his presence, to spread among the whole earth. That's his Edenic vision, to spread Eden until Eden becomes global. And how do we know this? Well, aside from the narrative going throughout the Bible, we see it in the last chapter of Revelation. We see the new Eden. And what is the new Eden? Is it, is it a geographical location? No, it's global. The whole globe is restored. The whole globe is now going to be made the new Eden. God's going to have very you know, very many more people than Adam and Eve. So you have this big picture of God spreading Eden, of God's Edenic vision, his original intention, and then you have all of these things that are anti-Eden. Um, so while nations are, I, I think it's good to have sovereign nations. I think we need that because nations are they're just what we have to deal with now. But it wasn't God's original intention. God's original intention was one people. And that's why when you look at depictions of heaven, you have every, ty- every tribe, tongue, and nation worshiping God as one. There is no slave or free. There is no male or female. We're all one in Christ Jesus. And when his kingdom comes to earth, and yes, it is going to come to earth, but when it comes to earth, you're going to have one people. You're not going to have all this division. So when you, when you look at the big picture, you see God spreading Eden, and ultimately that's what he's going to do. But in the biblical narrative, you have everything in between. In other words, you have everything in between Genesis 3 and Revelation 22, um, which is the story of what God's doing, the, the, the narrative of what God's doing, the plan that God is enacting. And it's such an incredible plan. I wish we could talk about it for five more hours today, but we can't. Um, but you have this plan that he's enacting that's unfolding throughout Scripture. And so you have Eden where it starts, you have the fall, you have the Nephilim, you have Babel, but at Babel, what happened? Well, according to Deuteronomy 32 verses eight and nine, this is the part they don't tell you in the preschool narrative of Babylon or, or of Babel and of, of the flood and so on. But in Deuteronomy 32 verses eight and nine, what we see is that the nations were disinherited at Babel. They were disinherited. They were placed under these lesser Elohim who we know in Deuteronomy 32, 17, are demonic because they're fallen. They're, they, they become corrupt because they accept worship. And then in, in Psalm 82, 
um, we see that they are being judged for this. They're being judged and they're going to die like mere mortals. So you have at Babel this huge event where God takes the nations and he divides them according to the number of the sons of God, the number of the B'nai Elohim. So he puts the nations underneath these lesser lesser Elohim. He disinherits them, but he didn't disinherit them forever. He disinherited them with the plan to draw them all back into himself. Of course, in the next chapter in the Bible, Genesis 12, he takes Abram and he starts his own nation. He says, okay, if you're not going to obey me, if you're not going to do what I tell you, if you're not going to love me, then what I'm going to do is I'm going to disinherit the nations and I'm going to start my own nation. So he takes Abram in Genesis 12 and you see throughout the rest of the biblical narrative, this nation produced, God's chosen nation produced in order to bring the light of who God is to the other nations, uh, ultimately through Christ. Now, this isn't this isn't supposed to happen explicitly through the law. That's not told to us in the Old Testament. God didn't say, Abraham, go make sure you, you, you dominate the other nations and enforce this law on every one of them. That's not his goal. Israel was the nation that the Messiah would come through. And when the Messiah comes, when the Messiah came, in our case, he's drawing all the nations back to himself. Now, those disinherited nations. So what you had was you had these specific laws during that time, Uh, that Israel had been given because Israel was a theocracy. Israel was meant to be the nation that God's Messiah came through, that God's Messiah would be birthed through. And as we saw in Romans 9 and I believe Romans 5, we see that they're the nation who were entrusted with the things of God. They were entrusted with the covenants. They were entrusted with temple worship and and sacrifice. They were They were entrusted with the oracles of God. They were entrusted with the law. They were entrusted with all of these things. And they were for a specific time. They were for for a specific people who the Messiah would come through. They were his chosen specific nation. They were not the other nations. The other nations didn't have the law. We just saw that explicitly. So after Christ, when you get to New Testament times, what we see is uh, something very different than general equity theonomy or in something very different than Christian nationalism or, or Christian totalitarianism. What we see in the New Testament is the apostles um, taking the Great Commission and acting it out all over the place. And no, the Great Commission is not dominating other nations. <laughs> it, like, you know, for guys who complain about people playing video games, maybe they really should go play some video games based on world domination. Maybe it'll get some of it out of their system. Maybe that's what it is. Okay, but we're not supposed to be focused on world domination. We're supposed to be focused on Christ and we're supposed to be focused on his gospel. Now, when something's wrong, okay, when some, let's say abortion, for example, of course we stand up to it. I mean, the, the government's contradicting themselves. If murder is illegal and abortion is legal, well, then the government's contradicting themselves. If murder is illegal, but assisted suicide is legal, then the government's contradicting themselves. And of course, we stand up to things that the government does wrong. I actually want one of my uh, favorite stories is when Bishop or Ambrose, the Bishop of uh, Milan would not allow Theodosius to take communion because he had, he had rounded up all of these people who had killed one of his, uh, one of his men. And he, he had 7,000 of them slaughtered. Okay. And, and the Bishop of Ambrose or the Bishop of Milan, Ambrose wouldn't allow him to take communion until he took off all of his priests or, or his kingly robes, uh, his, his emperor's robes and he repented. So I, and I, I think that's a wonderful example. I think we see this all the time and that's because we're not to put man's law over God's law. Now we're, we're to be obedient to the government. We're to be submissive to the government unless they overstep and when they do overstep, it doesn't mean we stop being submissive to the government overall. It means we don't obey them on that particular issue. So for me, when the government said, you have to get a vaccine or you can't do this, this, and this, well, I didn't get one and neither did my family. And if, and if you did, that's fine. The point is it should come down to um, a family decision. It, it should come down to your own conscience. Maybe there's a reason God convicted me and not you or vice versa. But I didn't go against my conscience. I said, well, I can't do this because it has a potential to harm my family. Um, If the government were to say, you can't preach Christ, like they did in Acts 4 and 5 with the Sanhedrin, well, I would say the same thing that Peter and John said. I can't obey you rather than God. I have to obey God. 
but they were also willing to take the punishment uh, when they did this. So, you know, our, our job isn't to dominate governments. Our job is to love Christ, and our job is to share the love of Christ through the gospel. Um, of course, it doesn't mean always being nice. Of course, it, we, we stand up to what's wrong. I mean, we do it all the time, especially in this day and age. But it's not our, our concern is not to be tough guys, um, you know, tough guys who just basically get to make their own rules, who get to worship themselves, who who don't submit to government or to anything because God tells us in Romans 13 and in first Peter two, that, that, that doesn't honor him. It honors him when we submit to government. Um, so long as, as those particulars are in the bounds of God. So we, all that to say, we have something very different than what the Christian nationalists would propose. And I wanted to show you an example now from acts 19. And this is actually, I think it's, first of all, it's awesome what's going on here. But second of all, it shows us clearly what's happening. Paul's going into these other nations, okay? He's, he's going into these other, uh, these other cities, foreign, foreign gods are worshipped in these places. And what he doesn't do is he doesn't bring a team of people with him to approach the government and say, we need to smash these temples. We need to smash the places where these idols are worshipped. That's what Muhammad did in Mecca. But that's not what the apostles did. What he does, rather, is he goes and he persuades them to leave their gods behind and to worship Yahweh, to worship Christ, the true God. He doesn't go and destroy things and say, hey, let's, make them, let's force them to obey these laws, the Ten Commandments, and, and all of these other laws that we see fit to transfer into the New Testament times um, and sort of interpret how we wish. Let's make them do that. I mean, think about it. In First Peter 2, you know, when, when Peter tells them, uh, this is in verse 12, uh, he says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they conf- accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Do you think they meant d- that Peter meant, hey, go in and knock down their temples when they have no idea who Christ is? Do you think that Peter meant, hey, if you guys, if you make sure that you don't wear two types of material in your garment, they're going to say, whoa, these guys are holy. You know, make sure you don't put cheese on your burger. And they're going to say, whoa, they're holy. Well, that's the Mosaic law. That's the law we don't need anymore. No, what he says is live such good lives among the pagans that they can't accuse you of wrongdoing. And instead, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. That's the goal. That's why he says become all things to all people. He doesn't say become a tyrant and dominate everybody. This is so silly. So back to, to Acts 19. Like I was saying, this is one of my favorite examples of how things actually work through the power of the Holy Spirit and through the power of the gospel. And if you believe the gospel is sufficient, you'll see this. If you don't believe it's sufficient, then have your gods on earth to dominate everybody and see how that goes. Uh, but let's look at let's look at Paul. We'll start in verse uh, verse seventeen. So what's going on here is Paul has brought the gospel um, in the people who in. in Ephesus are worshiping uh, other gods, and they they have their temples to other gods. They have their practices where they're you know they're selling books and they're selling idols and so on and so forth. And look what happens. Look what happens through the power of the gospel. This is in verse seventeen. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas, or basically 50,000 days of pay. It's a lot of money. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. So he says, in this way, the word of the Lord spread and grew in power. Isn't that what we want? (laughs) Well, what did they do here? Did Paul come in and take over and, and smash their temple down with a, with a giant hammer uh, or whatever tool? No, he, he comes in with the gospel and the people repent and they burn their books that their whole livelihood depended on. They burned their idols. That's what they did. This is what actual cultural change looks like. It doesn't look like the government shutting down idols in other religions and false gods so that they can go home and worship in private. That doesn't honor God. In this case, it means persuading the people who are worshiping other gods to worship the true God. 
that's how cultural change happens. True cultural change, not a pretend quote-unquote conscious Christianity, but actual Christianity that Christ is concerned with. He doesn't desire sacrifice. He desires faithful love. Let's look at, uh, well, this is two paragraphs down. It says, uh, about that time there arose a great disturbance about the way. And the way is what believers were referred to as followers of the way, the way, truth, and life. Uh, a silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. So let's pause. Demetrius, this guy named Demetrius, makes silver idols of Artemis, the god, one of the, the goddesses that they worshipped here. So he makes these silver expensive idols, um, and they make a lot of money. They do a lot of business with this. So in verse 25, this is Acts, oh, by the way, I started at verse 23 in Acts 19. This is verse 25. He called them together along with the workers in related trades and said, you know, my friends, that we receive a, a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He, see that? See, see how much influence the gospels had? And it says, he says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. And when they heard this, they were all shouting and they were angry. Um, and they had, uh, they had they grabbed a hold of Paul and had him arrested. But notice what's happening here. Why are they concerned? Why are the guys making idols concerned? They're going out of business because people aren't buying idols anymore. Because they're too busy worshipping Christ. They don't need idols anymore. <laughs> It's not because the government shut their idol stands down. It's because God shut their idol stands down. And God didn't shut the idol stands down through the government. He shut it down through the power of the gospel. And we should be doing the very same thing. That should be our concern. Yes, of course, morality is good. And yes, it's true that every square inch of, of the earth belongs to Christ. But that's why we need to protect every square inch of it from Christian tyrants. So that people can see who Christ truly is, undistorted, and in the power of the gospel. Thank you for listening to The Universe Next Door. Don't forget to hit follow, and don't forget to register for the With Liberty and Justice for All conference this Thursday through Saturday this week. Go use the code CBC, and your registration will be free. Make sure you come and check it out. You will not regret it. You're going to learn a lot of things, probably some things that will make you uncomfortable, and certainly some things that are going to help you understand these issues and motivate you to do something about it. So otherwise, I'll see you back here Monday night at 6 p.m. on the Universe Next Door.